0: Go to Shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Behind the knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear.
1: Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content. But their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes, or contact us at hello at BehindTheKnife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Hi everyone. Welcome back to another surgical palliative care edition of Behind the Knife. My name is Red Hoffman and I'm an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. And one of about 80 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. I'm the founder and host of the Surgical Palliative Care podcast and the co founder of the recently launched Surgical Palliative Care Society. And I'd like to introduce again my fabulous co hosts, Dr. Zara Cooper and Dr. Amanda Stasny. So, Zara is a professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, the Kessler director for the Center for Surgery and Public Health, and the director and founder of the Center for Geriatric Surgery. And she is actually a leader in the field of surgical palliative care. So we're so happy to have her with us. Hi, Zara. Hope you're well.
2: Hi, Red. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. And Amanda Stasny is one of my awesome PGY3 residents at the Mayheck General Surgery Program in Asheville. And she tells me a future acute care surgeon. At least that's what she told me last week. Hi, Amanda.
3: Hi, Red. Yes, that is still the plan (laughs) with guidance.
1: Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Today we'll be talking about two topics near and dear to my heart, non-beneficial surgery and how to avoid doing it, and then care of the imminently dying patient. So we know that elderly patients with serious illness often receive poor quality end-of-life care, which leads to high rates of emergency department visits, high rates of admission to both the hospital and the ICU, high rates of in-hospital deaths with actually low rates of hospice referral. And further, we know that high-intensity treatments near the end of life, including surgery, often lead to prolonged suffering without meeting patients' goals of care. So Zara, as we're getting started, I'm wondering if you can first talk about how do we best define non-beneficial treatments and specifically non-beneficial surgery?
2: Yeah, thanks, right I think that's a really uh, good question and important question, uh, particularly for those of us who are acute care surgeons who who end up um, taking care of patients in these emergent situations. I think the best definition that I've seen really looks at it from the patient's perspective and says, you know, that non-beneficial surgery is surgery that won't benefit the patient, meaning that the best uh, that you can hope to achieve will not achieve what their goals and priorities are uh, and won't get them to a state that's acceptable to them.
3: Zara, in an article you co-authored in 2014, you define four main factors that contribute to communication pitfalls that lead to non-beneficial surgery at the end of life. Can you talk about those for us?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, the four factors are patient factors, surrogate factors, system factors, and surgeon factors. And I think Brief review of each would be helpful, and then perhaps we can talk a little bit more about the surgeon factors. You know, the patient factors are often, you know, where we have uncertainty about the diagnosis. We may not know who the who the patient is. You know, there's a lack of long-standing relationship. They may have uh, an underlying chronic illness that they're either unaware of, don't understand the magnitude of, or or are in denial. Surrogates are often, you know, ill prepared for their role. They don't know that they're really there to act in the patient's best interest, and often they revert to acting in their own best interest. And so many of us are really familiar with the kind of do everything scenario. And then, you know, system factors. And and you know, my colleague my colleague Gretchen Schwarz, you know, just so beautifully examined this and measured this in a paper that that I was fortunate enough to be on, and that she recently published in Annals of Surgery basically looking at, you know, if if the OR is open, if the OR is ready, if you're short on time, it just becomes easier to operate than to not operate. It seems easier to kind of go with the clinical momentum rather than to have difficult conversations and step back and think about things other than surgery. And then surgeon factors um, include the level of expertise and experience, maturity, comfort with uncertainty, and, and the surgical specialty.
1: Thanks so much for that, Zara. It's so interesting when you're talking about systems, system factors, and the idea that sometimes it's just easier to stay on that train of going, 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 and doing, doing. I remember as a resident, I, I was often told, you know, better to make errors of commission rather than omission, which I think oftentimes serves us as surgeons, but then I think of all the times that it really doesn't serve us, nor does it serve the patient or the family.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's right. And, and I do think about my own career and I would say that the errors of omission are, are the ones that haunt me, <laughs> but, but also that there are certainly times when we may be operating, you know, more for the benefit of the family More for the benefit of our consult, uh, you know, the colleagues who are consulting us, you know, particularly in in acute care surgery, but other scenarios like that where you're dealing with other people's complications, you know, there are a lot of different stakeholders, and it seems in those decisions, even though the patient should really be central to all of that. And so I do think we have to be mindful of all the different um, factors. Right.
1: You know, I'm particularly interested in the surgeon factor since most of us listening to this are surgeons because those are the ones that seem to be most in our control. And so I'm wondering, Zara, which surgeon factors do you think are most modifiable?
2: So I guess it's about 15, 20 years ago now, you know, there was a lot of discussion around the concept of surgical buy-in also that was, uh, you know, put forth by by Gretchen and and other colleagues, also the surgical covenant. The idea behind, you know, these paradigms is that, you know, surgeons approach our care as, you know, we know this is going to be hard, but if you agree to surgery, if you go through all the things that you need to do to get better, I'll be there with you you know, and it doesn't really allow the patient to change their mind. It doesn't allow for the dynamics of of unexpected situations, unexpected complications. It doesn't really allow for patient autonomy in some circumstances. And so I think um, that whole concept is something that has that we've needed to modify over the years. And I think that that absolutely has. I think understanding of total illness burden is also incredibly important improving our understanding of geriatrics, frailty, medical chronic illnesses that underlie a lot of the diseases that we care for, you know, recognizing our own values about end of life care, but also the clinical skills that are needed to really care for patients who are near the end of life. And I'm glad that we're going to talk about care of the imminently dying patient shortly. Um, And then communication skills that we really need as a field to approach as any other kind of clinical skill set that surgeons need to have and recognize, yes, there are some people who are gifted communicators, but, you know, there are also some people who are gifted with their hands, but it doesn't mean that, you know, they don't still need to perfect their craft.
1: Right. And I also think it's worth discussing our role as surgeons in helping to shape like the culture of the hospital, so I think of this a lot when I'm consulted to place a tracheostomy or a um, a feeding tube in a in a particular patient. And I think as a younger surgeon, I just felt like perhaps this was my job. Someone's asking me to do my job, and I'm beholden to them to do it. And I think over time, I came to this idea that surgeons are not just technicians. That if someone's inviting us. Onto the care team that we also have the responsibility to discuss with the patient and family what their goals are, what they're hoping to achieve and, and again, help them try to avoid non-beneficial surgery. So try to understand what the goals are. And if the goals are one thing, I think people often have a very skewed view of what a feeding tube may actually help one to actually achieve in the end. So I feel like it's important for us as surgeons to engage in that shared decision making with the patient and the family. However, I've, no- I've noticed over time that this can then somehow lead to some tension between the surgeon and the primary team. So it kind of brings it back to that whole idea of communication. It's not just communication with the family, it's really communication with all the team members. And then that whole idea, Culture of the hospital so that we're bringing everyone back together and saying we're just going to keep the patient at the center. And I realize you asked me to do one thing, but upon further discussion, I just don't think this is best for the patient. And I'm just wondering, Zara, like in your experience, how you've dealt with some of those situations where you're asked to do something that feels really non beneficial to you. How do you approach it?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I confronted one of these scenarios just a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> you know, the first thing I did was I asked the patient what they hoped to achieve by having the feeding tube placed. It was a, a, a woman with a malignant bowel obstruction, you know, and what she hoped to achieve. And then I carefully explained all the reasons why I was worried that placing this feeding tube was not going to achieve those things. And in fact, could reduce her quality of life by setting her up for complications, wound infections, all sorts of things that would probably keep her going back and forth to the hospital. And it did require that I had a conversation with a very senior surgical oncologist. And we agreed that it was only fair that I be able to explain to her why I didn't think it was going to (laughs) work. You know, know, I do think we have an obligation. If we feel like something's not going to work, we have an obligation to tell our patients. But we started off with what she was hoping to achieve and why I didn't think that it was going to get us there. Um, and then, you know, we considered a different route, you know, and so the big goal was to get her chemotherapy. She had very aggressive disease. It was to get her to her third or fourth line chemotherapy or whatever it was. Her oncologist was worried that she wouldn't be able to achieve that unless she was eating again. And I kind of said, why? You know, and, you know, reframe the conversation in a lot of different ways. So I do think we have to act as more than technicians for the patient's benefit. The teams that are consulting us don't have the expertise that we do. And, and they certainly don't understand, you know, the unfortunate downstream effects of some of the things that we can do.
1: Yes, that's such that's such a good point that they're not only consulting us for our skill, but they're also, or hopefully, are consulting us for our understanding of the potential complications of which we become very
3: familiar. <laughs> Amanda, anything to add or any questions? Um, Yeah, I mean, I struggle with this, especially as a resident. You know, I'm in that boat of getting that trade consult and feeling like, you know, this is what we have to do. But I think it is important for people in training to realize that it can be a busy service and we're kind of those worker bees. And we can kind of bring some of this to the table, too, even if it's just like asking why or kind of like the questions that Zara was bringing up about what are the goals and that kind of thing. So I think that's really good to think about.
2: Yeah. If I could, right, I mean, I'd love to add just one more thing that I think is a missed opportunity in surgical training. And I I know the curricula are just so jam-packed that it's hard to fit anything else in. (laughs) But, you know, as we are caring for more and more older patients who go to nursing homes, who end up going to skilled nursing facilities, long-term acute care hospitals... You know, I do think it becomes increasingly important for us to familiarize ourselves with what those places are like, you know, and what the outcomes will be. Um, You know, some patients do unexpectedly well. And I think it's often also very easy when you're in the hospital and you're seeing the sickest patients all the time and you see them at their worst, you see their families at their worst, to just think that, you know, nothing will ever work. Um, and here you are just sending people off to die. Well, obviously, the mortality rates are high and the complication rates are high, um, you know, with a lot of these complex and vulnerable patients. But there are some successes and understanding what, what that next step can be like, I think, is really important, um, an important part of our education.
1: So it sounds like one, we should all kind of visit some of these um, skilled nursing facilities and two, we should show up to clinic to see some of our successes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Which I know is every surgical resident's favorite place to be.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes. And and, and, Zara, I was hoping too, that you could talk a little bit about the idea of how feeling forced or or coerced to provide non-beneficial surgery could lead to moral distress. Because I know you had a a recent paper and I, I just really wanted to touch on that because I know there's been a lot written about moral distress and, and how it can lead to burnout. And obviously I, I think, and I'm sure Amanda would agree with this. I feel like the lower you are on the totem pole, the more moral distress you're often faced with because you're the one in the thick of it, but you have like the least amount of power to make positive change.
3: Well, in that same vein, Greg, if if you don't mind, like it's so hard when you hear it called like moral distress, like when you feel like you're doing a disservice to these people. Yeah, that's something I had not until recently encountered. And you just feel like you're hurting them by doing things.
2: The term moral distress originated in the nursing literature. And if we think about some of the conflict that we encounter in the intensive care unit between nurses and the ICU team, right? And you imagine that, you know, as the ICU team, unless that patient is crashing and is being coded for hours and hours and hours, which happens sometimes, right? Most of us are in and out for moments at a time. Maybe we spend 10 or 15 minutes at the bedside, but the nurses are there for 8 to 12 hours nonstop. And you know, you can imagine if you think about where they find themselves in caring for these patients, where they don't think that they're doing that, they're that the patient's ever going to get better, you can imagine how that causes moral distress. And you can see how, you know, how it acts out in the conflict and, and, you know, the, the type of behavior and the type of questions and the antagonism. And then I've looked at that and then realized how you know, it affects me and how I also have moral distress when I feel like I'm not doing the right thing for my patient. And I I do think it's a really important thing for us to recognize, because we need to listen to that, you know, that instinct, that gut instinct tells us that something's not right. And rather than suppressing it, I think it makes sense to run it by a colleague to get backup to get more information. Um, And also sometimes to acknowledge that with the family and say, you know, this is really hard for me. I I don't think that I'm necessarily doing the right thing for your family member. And, and let's talk about again, what this is going to achieve for you. And quite frankly, there are times we had somebody on our service not too long ago, you know, where we went ahead with the surgery. And then, you know, after the family saw the patient in the ICU intubated with the open abdomen, they were like, no more. But I think that we still provide benefit to that family And therefore that patient with that first operation. I, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but I I do think that, that it's something that, that we really need, need to grapple with. The other thing I will say, Red, is that, uh, you know, for those of us who, who have become boarded in palliative care or have become interested in palliative care as, you know, an important part of our research or clinical career, you know, without fail is about this moral distress. Like the catalyst is some patient you know, that you didn't feel like you were doing the right thing for and you wanted to figure out how to do it better or differently. Um, and, and so I think those of us in palliative care are really quite keenly aware of all of this.
0: Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business.
2: In the world of diesel pickup, Shell knows that performance and engine protection are essential. There's never been a better time to experience the Shell Rotella difference. So treat your truck tonight and get up to $40 in digital gift cards. Because here and now, where every mile is an adventure, Shell Rotella is engineered for top-notch performance in any condition. Take pride in your truck and get unrivaled protection with up to $40 in digital gift cards. Shell Rotella. Different drives us. Ends May 15, 2024. Terms apply. See rotella.com slash rewards for details.
1: I would 100% agree with that. It's very interesting. I didn't hear this idea, this concept of moral distress until a couple of years ago, but I remember when I first felt it was as a resident, a second year resident in the ICU. And then when I felt it even more acutely was as a surgical critical care fellow, not so much on my own behalf, but on behalf of the nurses being stuck in the ICU for months and months at a time and watching these nurses struggle because they just felt like they were providing non-beneficial care to the patients. And it's interesting when I think about it now, I don't have that much moral distress in my life because, you know, as you get a little farther in your career, I feel a little more comfortable saying no and very comfortable talking with patients and families about shared decision-making. And and there have been times when I've gone ahead and felt like the family really you know, it's often the family, the patient's usually intubated. It's the family really wanted to go ahead, but I felt like they needed to, or they wanted to. And I was like, okay, I could sign on to this with the understanding that this will probably be a time limited trial. So I I feel hopefully that as we progress in our careers, we may feel less and less and a of this, but I am really tuned into how my residents often feel, especially when you're on a service where, you know, the attending may be a beautifully skilled surgeon, but not the best communicator in the world. And you feel like the patient and the family are really struggling and you're kind of stuck in the middle.
3: Yeah, I think so. Like I had a recent experience like this where we like gathered all this information and we presented it to the patient and they're like, you know, I don't want to go forward with this X lap that is not really going to change anything. And I, you know, I don't want to die with a colostomy and all these things. And then he's like, but let me call my family really quick. And then they call their family. And then he's like, we're doing the surgery. And it's like, we just presented him all these facts, but I feel like they're just facts. And it wasn't like, you know, I don't think this is a good idea or like, I don't know when you can say no.
2: You know, Amanda, I just love what you just said, because I think it's so important for us to remember that they're just facts and so often we rely on the data and we we rely on rational thought and we can think about all the difficult families who aren't behaving rationally and it's because you know this is all existential and it's about emotion and um you know and we have to recognize that that's true for us as well and and that's exactly right they're just facts and and one thing that i find a lot of comfort in is that if we look at the very early studies in palliative care by some of the leaders in the field, like Susan Block and David Weissman, looking at, you know, what are the things that the dying patients value most? It's that they don't want to be a burden to their family. They don't want to upset their family, and they're willing to go through additional treatment for the sake of their family. And so even when I feel like in, in that, you know, that kind of scenario where I'm not necessarily doing The very best thing for my patient, I also realized that the family is a major priority for them. And if this is what their family wants, oftentimes they'll they'll go for it. They'll be comfortable with it. I don't want to say comfortable, but they'll accept it.
3: That's good to hear. I mean, this caused me like the most moral distress I've ever experienced (laughs) because I was like, I'm not doing anything for this man. And he just told me he doesn't want this, but now he's saying he wants it because his family wants it. And it's just, I guess his family is more important to him than what he wants. And I didn't think about
1: that. So thank you. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to just shift to care of the imminently dying patient. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is one of the reasons I love integrating palliative care into my practice as an acute care surgeon is because even when the decision is made not to offer surgery, I still feel like can really offer the patient and the family, as we were saying, high-quality end-of-life care. And I think there are a few skills that come into play here. One is being able to recognize imminent death, which we'll talk about in a second. Two is to have a basic understanding of the Medicare hospice benefit. And then three is just being familiar with a few tips that may help ease the patient's symptoms at the very end of life. So Amanda, can you talk a little bit about the signs of imminent death?
3: Sure. So all these signs are broken up into early, middle, and late signs of death. Overall, there's not like a strict timeline for when these can appear or um, progress, but essentially the early signs of imminent death, which may be in the first days to weeks or two, um, is that the patient will become bed bound, lose interest in doing things, um, they'll eat, drink less, want to eat and drink less, and they'll undergo some cognitive changes. Things like sleeping more and being more delirious, potentially. Um, mental signs, as far as the timeline goes, is a further decline in the mental status to where they become obtunded, um, Much harder to arouse and maybe only arouse for brief periods. And then the later signs of death are things like the death rattle, which is a sound that people make due to pooled oral secretions that they can't clear due to loss of a swallowing reflex, coma, um, fever, which they can get from aspirating, altered respiratory patterns, whether that's breathing slower or faster than normal um, or regular breathing, and then their extremities can become mottled.
1: Thanks Amanda. So I wanted to make a couple comments ab- about these signs. So one, I think one of those early signs losing the interest in or ability to eat or drink. We know that, you know, many of us come from cultures where feeding and and watering our loved ones is a is a way that we show our love and support. And I think that this is one of the places where families really struggle and I found especially like where Amanda and I practice patients have a lot of farms so they have like have a lot of animals and I and I often will say to patients you know think about when either your beloved pet or animals on your farm are sick like what do they do they go spend time by themselves and they stop eating or drinking it's just like that natural process of shutting down and I, and it's interesting when I bring it up in that sense it it seems like people start understanding more of them. Another like weird thing that I still get, I am actually amazed that I still get surprised by this sometimes. I just was surprised a couple of weeks ago is when we're talking about those later signs of death, particularly that altered respiratory pattern where you'll see that guppy breathing or these periods of apnea. You know, it took me a while to realize that patients, even when they're mechanically ventilated, can still go into this pattern of breathing. So just a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh my God, that looks like that person's dying. And then it took me a while to put it together and they actually died still getting mechanically ventilated, like they were done. And so it was just a reminder to me that one, I'm still constantly learning and two, you can still die attached to the vent. I just was wondering, Zara, do you have any like kind of thoughts around this imminent dying?
2: Yeah. I think one thing that I think takes a lot of people off guard is that the cognitive changes are very unpredictable and very unreliable. And so, you know, so often, you know, I hear, well, he was just making jokes (laughs) and then he died a few hours later. And yes, you know, people can still be cognitively aware, can participate. And in so much of what we do in palliative care, that's kind of the goal, right? I mean, we're trying to get them comfortable enough that they can participate if they're not in too much distress, so uh, I think that we need to recognize what the physiologic signs are of dying, and and sometimes separate them from from the cognitive and and, and mental signs of dying. But I would agree with you, Red. I, I never fail to be surprised, and and one of the things that. I think is really important and you're fortunate in some ways that you're in this scenario where people have this familiarity with their animals dying because there are fewer and fewer of us who really have that experience. I mean, so many of us because death has been so medicalized and I say that with or without judgment, but it's really separated many of us from the familiarity with the dying experience. And so people can go through medical school and, and residency even, and that's really the first time that they've encountered somebody who's dying. We don't see it all that frequently, and so can be really hard to, to deal with in that regard.
1: Yeah. And one other thing about being at the bedside with the dying patient is really remembering that you may be the only person in the room who's seen someone die before. And so I really do try to spend a few minutes with the family educating them about what they may see in the next hours to days. I'll often tell them that even when we're taking we're um, doing a palliative extubation, i'll I often say that, dying is just like being born and everyone does it in their own time. And so that there's truly no timeline. It may happen within minutes and it sometimes people just are not done yet. And we have to just kind of allow them to have that process. And lastly, I really try to model what I feel like is behavior that they just might not be familiar with. So I always have my hands on the patient's feet at the end of the bed. But I just like to tell people it's it's okay to touch them and love on them and gather around them. And I really try to just invite them into the circle. And I always say, like, I just want to try to curate this death for people because people just, they just don't know what to do. They're standing around. And it took me a while to realize, oh, they're kind of looking to me for some for some guidance because they've never done this before.
2: Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is so important. And you know, particularly for the trainees, you are often the person who's at that bedside. Yes. And and you know, sometimes you you gotta put on your game face and pretend like you know what you're doing because that is a moment that those families will remember. And they will remember you and how you how you behave. So it is really important that we we guide them through that. One other thing that I wanted to bring up was this timeline piece because it can be so stressful when a patient doesn't die, you know, doesn't die in a timely way. And then the family starts to think, you know, should we, shouldn't we, we're doing the right thing or we do the wrong thing. And and it's in those situations that I find going back to the goals and priorities that the patient and the family, you know, laid out in the first place that helped guide the decision making that got us to this place often is the most important to just remind everybody what we can achieve, what we can't achieve, and really just support them in in that space.
1: So I wanted to just talk a little bit about the hospice Medicare benefit. And one of the reasons I love talking about hospice is because people don't really realize that of the first like 10 hospices in the United States, three of them were actually started by surgeons. So we have a long history of hospice care in this country, which I think is amazing. And I often say to patients that, you know, hospice is covered under Medicare Part A. And so I'll tell patients, you've been paying into this benefit for your entire working life. So I really want people to actually be able to access that benefit. And so a little bit to know about hospice. Amanda, do you know who is actually eligible for hospice?
3: Um, I believe it's if you have a life expectancy less than six months. Yeah. So it's patients who have
1: six months or less to live. And then the other thing I always add, it's also for patients who are no longer interested in or no longer able to tolerate disease modifying treatment. And so you really need both of those You because uh, there's quite a few of our patients, right, who have life expectancy less than six months, but they are still wanting full court press, which is fine. So their goals of care are not aligned with hospice. So for hospice is six months or less to live. And no longer pursuing disease-modifying treatment. And I like to remind people, you know, in the end, it's the hospice medical director will make the final decision about whether the patient qualifies for hospice. So any physician can refer to hospice, and I want people to recognize that. You don't have to be a hospice doctor to refer. You refer, and then the patients will choose a hospice company, and that hospice medical director will decide if the patient is eligible for hospice. Another thing to know about hospice is that there's four different levels of hospice care. The one that's most commonly used by patients in the United States is home hospice. So about 90 to 95% of hospice patients are on home hospice. I think the important thing to remember about home hospice is it is an amazing benefit, but I don't like to oversell it. So when you are on home hospice, the hospice company will pay for your medications that are related to your hospice diagnosis. They will pay for your durable medical equipment. You know, you may see a doctor or advanced practice provider once a month or once every other month. You may have a nurse come out once a week. You may have a nursing assistant or a chaplain or a licensed clinical social worker come once a week or once every other week. But think of how many hours are in a day and how many hours are in a week. And most of that time, is the patient's family or paid caregivers are doing the heavy lifting? And I think that that's really important to remember. I never want to like oversell the benefit. So that's home hospice. I think one of the great benefits of home hospice is you have a 24 hour number to call and you can speak to a hospice nurse. So when people are in crisis in the middle of the night, you don't have to go to the emergency department, you can talk to a nurse. The next level of care that people are most familiar with is inpatient hospice. So that's called GIP hospice, general inpatient hospice. And that can be done at an an inpatient hospice facility or a hospice house, or it can be done anywhere there's 24 hour nursing care. So that could be done at a skilled nursing facility or many hospitals like the hospital Amanda and I work at have an inpatient hospice program. And then the two other levels of care, continuous home care and respite care are, they're kind of getting in the weeds and we don't need to know about them. So I think the big take home of hospice is knowing that anyone can refer. So I think like refer widely and let the hospice medical director decide if your patient is actually eligible for hospice and then really be thinking about The benefits of hospice are not only for the patient, but for the family. So the family's getting that care from the licensed clinical social worker and from the chaplain, and then the family also importantly gets bereavement services for 13 months after their loved one dies, which I think is a benefit that not many people know about. Anything to add on that, Zara?
2: No, I was just so pleased that you mentioned that bereavement benefit, because I do think it's really important, uh, and not a lot of people know about it, but it it is a great great comfort for for families when they have that.
3: Anything else as we're wrapping up, Amanda? No, I think this has been really great. I learned a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I hope everyone listening learned a lot too. So I just want to take another moment to once again, thank the Behind the Knife team for investing in surgical palliative care education. And We hope to see you again in a few months for our last Surgical Palliative Care Journal Club. So thanks so much, everyone. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by
2: Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening.
0: Until next time, dominate the day. Selling a little. Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere.